0: Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. That's going to be our leaping off point today. That's going to be our starting point. Luke chapter 4. As you turn to Luke chapter 4, today's sermon in our series, Holy Ghost, the God you never knew, we are in part 6, and we're going to talk about how God equips us. When I was a kid, I played Little League Baseball. Anybody here play Little League Baseball? They took one look at me. Catcher! I hated it. You know why? Because the catcher's got to squat for, like, the whole game. Like, if he's, not, if he's not, you know, sitting on the bench waiting to bat, he's out on the field, but he's up and down and up and down and up and down. And you have another kid who has no aim or control hurling baseballs at you. A lot of fun, right? But to keep you safe, what do they do? The team, a good team, will equip you. They will give you a chest protector, shin and and, and knee protection, and a big big face mask and helmet to protect you, and a glove that is so much thicker than everybody else's because you're going to be catching a ball. Even for a tiny kid to throw a 30, 40-mile-per-hour fastball, it doesn't sound very fast, but when you're on the receiving end of that ball, all the extra padding in your glove is really appreciated. And so being equipped for the job that you either were volunteered for or that you have stepped up into uh, makes all of the difference. You try to go and be a catcher without that equipment, it could end badly. You can break a finger. You can get hit in your knee. You can get hit in the head if you don't have a helmet, things like that. We must be equipped to do the job that we've been called to do. Here's the good news. Here's the big overarching theme. If you hear nothing else today, this is what you need to hear. Jesus has called you to do a work, and he has equipped you to do it. See, I've had various jobs in my life, and there are times where people hire you, and they just expect you to know what to do. They just expect you to know how to run this or run that. Very little training, very little expertise shared with you, and you're just expected to figure out what to do. And at those times- I hated those jobs, but the jobs where they would train me up, give me the equipment that I needed, supply you know things like steel toe boots and things like that, I could do a better job because the Holy Spirit is either uh misunderstood or we don't know him at all we we forget that the Holy Spirit equips us to do the work God has called us to do. Some of us feel that we have to do this great work for God from our own power, from our own reserves, by our own finances, by our own uh, uh, mental state, in our own physical power. And, and most Christians who endeavor to, to serve God like that burn out, and they burn out fast. They end up becoming a casualty and for some, they never recoup. For some, they get so burnt out they either abandon the church, or or they're shell shocked. They could just never, they, they they can't handle the responsibility anymore because they have endeavored to do something in their own power. So today, we need to be reminded not only that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, equips us to do the work He's called us to do. We need to be reminded what is that work. Well, what does that mean? He's he's equipped us to do good work. We know what the cliche things are, giving and loving and, and serving and finances and all that. But specifically, what are we called to do? What's my job? What's my part? Here's the good news. Even Jesus was equipped by the Holy Spirit. Let that be a comfort to you today. Luke chapter 4, verse 18 says this to set the stage a little bit Jesus is standing up in the synagogue he's just come from according to the chronology of Luke in the Gospel of Luke he's just come from the wilderness of temptation he's been tried by Satan three times after 40 days of fasting and he has now come out from that before that he was baptized by John the Baptist and so this progression has led and now here he is on a on a Saturday morning in the the synagogue on a Sabbath, getting ready to preach to the people. He stands up, he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You don't get the tail end of that prophetic word that Jesus is quoting without the very beginning. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news. Church, our responsibility as we step up to be Christians, as we follow Jesus by faith, we are stepping into this same responsibility. Now, it's God's job to make it happen, but we too are going to proclaim the good news, and we need to be equipped by God, by His Spirit, to be able to do that, and to do that well. I believe that in every person there's some capacity to have a, an example to, of how to give. We see people who are atheists, we see people who are Buddhists, we see people who are, are a Muslim, who give, right? They, they are somewhat loving, right? but we don't see them loving in the name of Jesus, and we see that loving come to an end. We need a power that's outside of us to penetrate us and work through us. Here's the big misconception about every, almost every world religion, philosophy, what have you, that you will come across, that you must focus inward on yourself, that the power lies within you, Follow your own path. Follow your heart. Find your center. When we take Ethan to uh, the hospital, they have an interfaith chapel. And we've gone in there a few times. And off to the side, they have this thing called a labyrinth. And the idea is you walk this, this big, brightly colored circle till so you find the middle. And somewhere in that, you find yourself. Um, It just sounds like you're walking in a circle to me. And really what it's doing is it's f- taking your focus off of Jesus and placing it back on you. Church, anything that takes your focus off of Jesus must be crucified. And then you must begin to see everything through Jesus. You might be saying, well, well, Pastor Tony, I have children. What do I do? You see them through Jesus. You don't see them in front of Jesus. You see Jesus and then them through that. In that way, you will be able to love them and serve them and raise them the way that God has called you to. If you get it the other way around, you will set up an idol. And someday God's going to knock down that idol, and it's going to make you very mad and very hurt, and it's going to break you, and that's sort of the point. Jesus was anointed. The Bible says he emptied himself as he came from his heavenly throne to this plane that we live in. He emptied himself, and the Father sent the Holy Spirit to empower him to proclaim the gospel of himself. The very power that Jesus had to proclaim and do the things that he did is the same power that resides in us. Now some folks get so enamored and enthralled with the gift that they neglect the giver. The highest and best use of your gift, whatever God gives you, is to be used to worship the giver of that gift. So today we're going to talk about being equipped. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Chapter 12 will be right in verse 1. Just get right to the beginning of that chapter. Verses or excuse me, chapters 12 and 14 of the book of 1 Corinthians are enormous when it comes to spiritual gifts. And over the next coming weeks, we're going to be kind of planted in that area more or less uh, as we finish out this sermon series. Chapter 12, chapter, and some in chapter 13 and chapter 14 are not just about. What gifts we get, it's how we use those gifts, why we are given those gifts, how to identify those gifts, how to flourish in those gifts. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Are you ready? All right. Nobody said anything. That's okay. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Verse 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's going to be our... who apportions to each one individually as he wills verse 11 is a big verse okay just as a side note there are, there are some strains of Christianity that will tell you that you can pick and choose the spiritual gifts that you want they they kind of preach a a spiritual buffet if you will you know you want a lot of this take it you don't want any of that you don't have to take it just take whatever you want or they'll teach that you can learn how to do these things You want to prophesy? Come to my prophetic class, and I'll teach you how to prophesy. You want to speak in tongues? Come to my class. I'll teach you how to speak in tongues. You want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? Come to my class. I'll teach you how to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that the one who gives the gifts gives them according to his will. God has a specific plan and purpose for the gifts he gives you. Now because we're in church, generally, we are not just focused on the individual, we're focused on us collectively. We are called the body of Christ. We all have a function and a position. But today, we're going to look at ourselves just a little bit more than we usually do. We don't want to be dangerous with that. We don't want to do it to a fault. But we do have to look at ourselves from time to time. To follow the the golden rule of loving one as you love yourself, at some point you've got to love yourself. Amen. You've got to see yourself. You've got to know yourself. The flaw is when you become so self-centered that Jesus becomes an afterthought. and We don't want to go off into that territory. So my first question to you today, and there will be a series of questions. What has God called you to do? If you are a Christian today, God has called you to do something. There are no wasted followers of Christ. There are no disciples of Jesus who are called to do nothing. Now there might be some who are called to do nothing. Um, what we would consider lesser jobs, less important jobs. There might be some who are called to do the things behind the scenes that, that maybe we never know happen. Um, for example, uh, Gladys is one of our, our deacons here at the church. She's a deaconess. Henry is a deacon here at the church. You may not know that, but they are. And one of the things that they are called to do and that they've stepped up into is praying on my behalf. They, I know that week in and week out, I have them praying for me. That's part of their responsibility. You guys never see that, nor do they go around wearing a shirt saying, I pray for Pastor Tony. It's my job. Look at me, everybody. That would be a long shirt, by the way. But that's what they are called to do. It's behind the scenes. You know, they, they they don't flash it, and they're not they're not heralded as some big hero for doing those things. It's behind the scenes. Many of the things that we do in church are going to be behind the scenes. You know, when somebody washes dishes in the back, when somebody sets up coffee in the back, when the children are doing something in the back and the children's teachers are doing something, we don't see a lot of those things, but we see the fruit of them. We see the result. When we see our children learning about Jesus, when we walk into a clean kitchen or we enjoy a cup of coffee, we see that somebody has done something. Everybody, everybody has been called to do something. What is your thing? What have you been called to do? Um this this one question should be both oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Glorious and wonderful. God, God has given me gifts. Oh my gosh, you mean it gets better? I've been forgiven, and I get stuff? Like this is really a great. I gave my awful life to Jesus. I died to myself that I might be raised up in the newness of Jesus, and I get stuff. This is a good deal. But it's also a place where we have to be careful because pride likes to hover in this little place right here. You know, for every, for every person who receives gifts, uh, if pride is there, they always want the, one, the, the gifts that are always seen. And it's not that you might not be called to do that. But if you're being motivated by pride to be seen, to be celebrated, you're going to end up hurting yourself and a lot of other people. And so we have to be cognizant. Pride might be there. I have to make sure. I have to let the Holy Spirit hold me in check. Why do I want to do this? Is it pride? Is it the wrong reason? Or is it that God has called me to do this? Here's a really good test. If you feel God God has called you to do something, should he take that away, how would you react? If he were to take that away, would you throw a fit? Would you have a tantrum? Would you yell at somebody? Would you call the pastor and ream him out? because you've been taken out of that position, then I I can assure you that that place may not be where you're supposed to be and you've made an idol of it. But if one morning you wake up or you get a phone call or something happens where you're removed from that position and you say, you know what, Lord, your will be done, that's, that's probably where you were supposed to be. You didn't make an idol of that place. You didn't worship the position. You worship the one who put you in that position. And so we've got to be careful that pride doesn't enter in and mess everything up. Because there's nothing wrong—no, uh, excuse me—nothing worse than a leader filled with pride. A leader in any capacity, somebody who vacuums in pride, bad, bad, just ugly, not good. Nobody wants, nobody wants to be that guy. And so we've got to hold pride in check. But what have you been called to do? First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says, "For just as the body is one and has many members." and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with christ for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body jews or greeks slaves or free and all were made to drink of one spirit we all we all are a part of this body paul uses this this metaphor or analogy that that the church is like a body jesus is the head he 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 makes all the decisions he has the vision He's the one who speaks. And we get to be everything else. We get to be the hands, the feet, the legs. We get to be the shoulders. We get to be all these different things. And we can't have bodies that are all arms. We can't have bodies that are all legs. We need everybody doing a part. What have you been called to do? Are you a toe? Are you, are you an ankle? Are you a leg? Are you, a, are you the hands of Jesus going and serving somebody? What is your calling? What is it? And that's one of the things that I uh, you know, one of the many things that I can't do. I can't and I can't tell you this is your job. You have been called to do blank. You know, I can pray for you, I can support you, I can give you opportunity, but this is something that happens between you and the Lord. This is something where through reading and fasting and praying and seeking and being in community with like-minded believers who are who are endeavoring for the same can come together and realize through the Holy Spirit What God has called you to do? What have you been called to do? Paul says to Timothy, be careful. Don't just put anybody in a position of power. Don't put somebody there who shouldn't be there. And don't put them there too soon if they are called to be there. One of the prerequisites for leadership or one of the earmarks of a leader leader, is somebody who hasn't been a believer for just a few months or maybe even just a few years. When you first give your life to Jesus, when when that transformation begins and your eyes start to be opened to the reality of the world, to the bigness of Jesus and what he's done on the cross, we call it being on fire for Jesus. At that point, You can't help but be excited. You want to be at church every time the doors are open. You're reading everything. You're searching all of the time. You can't help but do so. You are consumed by this new life Christ has given you. And then reality sets in. And you've got to learn how to live life and maintain this fervor, maintain this fire. For a moment, for a time, it's easy. Because you're so excited, oh my gosh, there's so much to do, and in that time you might endeavor to do something you're not called to do, and it ends up badly for you and other people because you weren't met. You're you're a, you're a square peg in a round hole; it just doesn't work. And so we don't put people who are new to Christ or new in their walk in positions of authority or power or leadership right away we want you to grow and to mature we want you to go through uh, a metaphorical or or, or a a spiritual boot camp if you will we want you to learn We want you to read the Bible learn to hear the voice of the Lord we want you to to serve and to love uh, in your newness without endeavoring to do all these big things and to not allow Satan to get a foothold in your life through pride And so Paul says, don't put people in places where you shouldn't be, I'm paraphrasing, where they shouldn't be, and don't put them there too soon. Paul goes through some earmarks of a leader. Uh, A a man must be a lover of one wife or must have one wife, uh, not given to drunkenness, able to teach. He he names off all these things, and these things aren't – you know, if you meet all that criteria, it doesn't mean you're a leader. It means if people are meeting that criteria, they might be ready to be a leader. For me as a leader, I look at that list, and if you come to me and say, Pastor, I want to be uh, this or that. This is what I feel I'm called to do. I'd say, okay, let's go through this list. Let's look at them. Let's look at your life. Let's examine where you're at. Let's see if you're really ready for this or if this is something we can do later. I'm not discounting what God is calling you to do and you hearing his voice, but let's go through this. Let's see where you measure up. You know, if you've got three wives and you get drunk every weekend, we're going to hold off a little bit. We're gonna put your your calling on the back burner, we're gonna deal with the multiple wives and the in the weekend drunkenness. You know, if you if you are given to anger, if you are unable to teach, we've got to work on those things before we allow you to be in a position of leadership. Because if we put you there too soon, even though you're called to do it, you'll get crushed and you'll crush somebody with it. And we don't want that. We don't want churches splitting or dividing. We don't want teams set up because we put somebody someplace too quick. So how do you know what your spiritual gift is? Let me give you a very simple formula. It's a formula that is not concrete. It's just the one that I practice. Based on what I read in the Word, I believe there's some flex there where you can do something a little different and and still get the, the desired results. But here's how I do this practically. I pray, Lord, what do I do? Lord, I'm being serious in this. I'm an idiot. I need to know what you are saying, doing, calling me to do. Please be as clear to me as possible. Help me to know what this calling or this responsibility is. So I pray. Then I begin to seek what is what are the possibilities? if 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 I don't feel a natural inclination towards something, what what do I see is available? You know if you're here at South Bay Chapel and you feel that there should be a college ministry, I think college ministry is great. That's awesome. But we have no college students. You might say, well, if you build it, they will come. Yeah, but there are other needs first that are here right now. Look at the needs that are here at the church. What could you do? What is not being done? What are the things that come to mind? I wish we had this. When people come and tell me, you know what you should do, Pastor Tony? In my mind, you know what I hear? You know what I want to do, Pastor Tony? You know what I'm volunteering myself for right now? That's what I hear. So if you say, you know what I think we should do? We should have a college ministry. I think to myself, you would be really good at that, I bet. And if you would like to do that, I will pray for you and I will support you. And we might even financially get behind you, but we want to make sure that we're not just you know, running off and doing any little thing. Is that an actual need of this church right here and right now? You know, Kristen and Justin came to us at the meeting a couple weeks ago. We want to split up the kids. Why? Because there's a need. The older kids and the younger kids, there's such a divide that they're not being taught at the full capacity that we could teach. And so we did what we could. That was an immediate need. And so now this morning we have the children split up so that the older kids can learn at their level and the younger kids can learn at their level. Pastor Tony, we need a bagpipe player. Do you play the bagpipes? No. Do you know anybody who does? No. Do you know where to buy bagpipes? No. Okay, that, that sounds like a good thing, but I don't think that's that's right here and right now. Maybe someday we'll have a bagpipe player when I'm dead, but not right now. At some point in time, maybe in the future. Now I'm going to get all kinds of anti-bagpipe hate mail. Oh, gosh. <clears throat> okay, so let's say you've done this. You, you, you've you prayed, You you've sought, or you've been seeking, you've been asking... Now try something. Try something that feels natural. Try something that scares you. My pastor, when I first told him, you know what, I think, I, I think I'm called to be a pastor. I, I don't know, it sounds crazy. I don't, I've never read the Bible, and I've only been going to church for a few weeks, but I feel like that's what I'm called to do. What should I do? He's, he, he told me to read the Bible, and then he said, let's get ready to preach a Bible study. And in my head, I was like, no! But I knew that if, if I said no to him, I would never say yes to him. It was the weirdest thing. I knew that I needed to say yes before I could think about it. I said yes. You know, it took a few months before I actually did that. And from that point on, if my pastor ever said, hey, why don't you try this? I just said yes. Because I'd get too scared. If I thought about it, I'd be so scared that I'd say no out of fear. And I didn't want to be that person. And I tried some things, and guess what? I failed at them. I tried to start a youth group one time, and I failed at that, like horribly. It was really bad. But you know what I learned? Not my gift. Not my calling. Not my, not my thing to do. It still needed to be done, and other people came along, and they got raised up, and they became the ones who were the youth leaders. It was really great. Don't be afraid to try something and fail at something. Failure is not the worst thing. Never trying is the worst thing. Well, Pastor Tony... I don't, know how to, I don't know how to do a Bible study. Yeah, let's fail at it a few times. Guess what? Eventually you'll get it right. I failed at preaching and teaching, I kid you not, for about 8 to 10 years before I felt comfortable. I'm not saying I've reached some plateau where I can just preach the dickens out of anything. What I'm saying is, is now I feel like I'm in a place where I'm not intimidated or scared. I can rely on the Holy Spirit more than I ever had. First 8 to 10 years, oh, it was horrible. Poor people who endured that. My gosh, pray for the people who heard me in those first 8 to 10 years because they're probably still recuperating and trying to figure out what I was actually saying. And then repeat the process. Pray and ask and seek and try and fail and repeat. Because eventually you will find something that is right. You will find that thing. You will go through the process and you will eliminate the jobs That you you gravitated towards for pride. You'll, You'll alleviate the ones that looked flashy and thought they'd be fun. And you'll get to the ones that you're actually called to do. You'll get to the ones where this is what Jesus made you for. I guarantee you, if you get to that place, you will be filled with a joy that I cannot describe to you. To know that you are doing what God has called you to do, it fills you with an inexpressible joy. That not only are you doing what you're called to do, God has called you to do something. Not because you're worthy, not because you're perfect, not because you haven't failed, not because there's not anybody better who can do it, but because he has chosen you to do it. It's a glorious experience. But let's say you're in the time period where you don't know yet. Specifically what you are called to do as a Christian. We all go through those times. What's my part? I don't know. I've been doing what Pastor Tony said. It's just not taking. What do I do? All of us as Christians, whether you're a pastor, whether you sit in a pew, whether you serve or you're sitting, everybody has something they've been called to do in general. These are the same tasks that I have, that you have, that we all collectively have. None of us are free of these responsibilities. They are in general what we've been called to do. Here is a short list of some of those things. Please write these down and refer back to them when you're feeling lost, when you're feeling as though you've never been called to do anything. Jesus doesn't love you. These are the types of things that Jesus has called you to do in general with the rest of us. Number one, pray, rejoice, and be thankful. It's a three-for-one point. It's a very good point. First Thessalonians 5 and 16 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. For you. For you, John and Henry and Christina and Harry. For you, Stephanie and John and Bree. For all of us, for me, for the kids, for the adults, if you're, if you're seasoned, that's my nice way of saying elderly, if you're seasoned... Your wisdom is vital to us who are becoming more seasoned. We need you and you need us. We need to be together as a family. You are not an afterthought. You are not uh, forgotten. We need your wisdom. You have seen things that we are just beginning to see. You have seen Jesus do things in church, in your homes, in relation with other people that we are just endeavoring or we are just starting to see. We need your wisdom. We need to see a model of rejoicing always. We need to see a model of praying without ceasing. We need to see a model of giving thanks in all circumstances. Church, this is all of our responsibility. Rejoice always. What does that mean? Rejoice some of the times. No, it's pretty self-explanatory. No matter what the circumstances or situations, we see them through Jesus. My glasses. I see everything through these lenses. Okay? You get a lot clearer when I put them on, right? I don't see correctly when they're gone. Guys are all blurry. I put them back on, though. I see you as you are. Church, when Jesus becomes the lens in which you see everything, you see them correctly. You see the good, you don't worship it as an idol. You see the bad as something that God will use for your good. You see Jesus through that lens, you no longer lose hope because you realize that situation's bad, but Jesus is better. That situation is going to hurt, but Jesus will heal that pain and give it a purpose. That that experience is going to cause tears. It's going to be hard. It's going to be arduous. But Jesus will be there with me, leading me through it. So on the other side, I'll be bigger and stronger and ready for the next thing. So we can rejoice. We sing that song, rejoice. When you sing that song, we should be rejoicing. I don't know. It just seems kind of obvious to me. But if if we're going to sing that song, we should do what the song says. Amen. Number, the next one, pray without ceasing. This transcends verbal, vocal prayer because you are going to go to work tomorrow. You are going to be driving in the car. You are going to come home to your family, and you're not going to have every moment to get down on your knees, to fold your hands, and to pray quietly or loudly. What we are going to do is develop a lifestyle of prayer. People will come and tell me, well, Pastor Tony, I love my driving time. That's when I pray. If that's, you know what, some people need to drive more. You, if that's your only time of praying, drive more or find time at home to pray. Because that's a good way to redeem time, but it shouldn't be your only time. Imagine being with your spouse only while you were driving in a car. For some of you husbands, your head just exploded. Because most of the time is the wife telling you how to drive. And you would say, oh my gosh, no, I need to have the good times. We're at home and she's not telling me how to drive. Would that relationship work? No. I only see my children when I'm driving in my car. Your children will grow up thinking that you have neglected them. And so if your only time of prayer, your only time of communion with God is driving in the car, that's a good way to redeem your time, especially if you have a long commute. But don't let it be your only time. Take some time at home. Five, 10. 15 minutes. You know, watch half an episode of Jeopardy. Skip the first half when nothing really matters. Get towards the end. See the final, you know, the final Jeopardy after you've spent some time in prayer. So rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Develop this lifestyle of prayer where you are communing with God every moment of the day. Give thanks in all circumstances. It's very easy to give thanks when things go good, right? But but maybe I'm the only one, but do you find that the good times are so much shorter? They go so much faster than than the bad times? I mean the bad things that happen to us, they just it seems like time just comes to a crawl. Oh my gosh. This is a valley of, of the shadow of death. I do not like this. I am not happy. But the Bible calls us to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, this isn't Jesus, I thank you, that I got hit in the head with a hammer as I was walking out the door today. This is Jesus, I thank you, that you're bigger than that proverbial hammer. Lord, I thank you, that you're bigger than cancer. Lord, I thank you, that you're bigger than job loss. Lord, I am thank you, that you're bigger than divorce or marital problems. Lord, I know that right now this is consuming me, but you should be my all-consuming fire. Jesus, be high and lifted up in my life. Help me to thank you in all circumstances. And then begin thanking him for everything. I'm awake. I'm breathing. I'm relatively healthy. I have people to meet at church today. Be thankful in all circumstances. This is the will of God for you. Number two, point number two, be sanctified. All of us are called to be sanctified, set apart for the work of Jesus. And we believe in a progressive sanctification. What does that mean? It's a big Christian term. It means that every day that we're alive, we're like a big block of wood, and Jesus is continuously working on us. And at point A, we're a broken tree branch in a forest somewhere. And at the end, we're a perfectly crafted, you know, chest of drawers or something. Just some work of art. But in between that time, Jesus is working on us. He's scraping away. He's sanding off edges. He's building stuff. He's redoing us and reworking us. That's progressive sanctification. We have all been called to that. First Thessalonians 4 and 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he starts off with a list that you abstain from sexual immorality. Church, nothing has changed biblically. Sexual immorality is still sexual immorality. Okay? Sexual immorality, biblically, is anything outside of of sex between a husband and a wife. So if there's anything that doesn't fit underneath that very tiny umbrella, it's considered sexual immorality. Well, what about watching, watching porn when my wife's not looking? That's not underneath the umbrella, and you should stop that. Okay, well, what about... What about – I've worked in construction and we all check out ladies as they walk by. Nope, that sexual immorality does not fit underneath the umbrella. Well, you know, I I have a wife – and notice how I'm I'm bringing the men into all this. I'm not even going to go after you ladies because, you know, I don't think I could take you guys. I have this girl that I've been connecting with emotionally. You know, I see my wife, but then I go to work and this, this girl, she just, well, every time I talk to her, she's, she's so great and she gets my jokes. You are, consi- you are committing adultery without the sex. And that should not happen. Whatever you are experiencing with that woman, you should be experiencing with your wife. And if you are not, it's a red flag and you need help immediately. So Paul starts off with talking about sanctification. He starts off that you abstain from sexual immorality. Continuing in verse seven, for God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whatever, uh, whatever, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Which leads us to point three: God progressively sanctifies us, but He's called us also to holiness. Not a holiness that leads to self-righteousness, not a holiness that makes you full of yourself or dependent on yourself, but the holiness found in Jesus. You pursue Jesus. Not holiness. You get Jesus, you get his holiness. When we stand before God one day, we won't stand in our own holiness, we'll stand in Jesus's, his perfect holiness. That's what we've been called to. Not self righteousness, not religion, not ritual, but the holiness found only in Christ. Number four, and this isn't the last one, but it's the last one for now. We've been called to make disciples. Matthew 28 and 19, we call this the Great Commission. Your Bible has a little heading. It says the Great Commission. Go therefore, verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age. Discipleship is is this endeavor to pursue Jesus and help others do the same. Discipleship is, is mentoring, but not only mentoring. Discipleship is, is being in community, but not only being in community. Remember earlier I talked about how we need to see a model of people who rejoice always, people who, who are thankful in all circumstances, people who pray without ceasing. That's part of discipleship, becoming disciplined, seeing someone else do those things, fail and succeed, and being able to, to do that as well, to become disciplined in our own life. You've been called to make disciples as I've been called to make disciples. So the question is, are you making disciples? If not, we need to begin. Okay, there's no condemnation. If we have failed at this, that's okay. Let's start today. How can I begin to make disciples today? Now, the good news about all of this. Now, some of you are thinking, I can't do this. It's too much. He keeps saying all this stuff I have to do. The good news is that God supplies you with what you need to do, what he has called you to do, and he uses the Holy Spirit to equip you. The world tells you to look inside. And I hit on this briefly. but The world tells you to look inside yourself, to find your center, to try harder, to follow your heart, that only a select few know or get to this place. And ultimately, they tell you, you are God. You are the God of your life. They might even make it sound Christian, but ultimately you're the one that sits on the throne of your heart. And if that's where you're at, you've got to crucify that. God, being the good father that he is, he gives you gifts not just for you. He gives them to you, for you, and for others. Verse 7 of 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 12 said, To each, that's to you and me, is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit or of the Spirit for the common Good for everyone's good. If Jesus has given you gifts specifically, things that only you are called to do, he has given them to you A because he loves you, B because he wants to give you things, and C because he wants to use you for the benefit of others. To take a gift and hoard it is sin. I'm really good at Bible teaching. I'm really good at serving other people. I'm really good at making meals. I'm really good at giving encouraging words. I'm really good at prophetic things. I'm really good at speaking in tongues, but I'm going to hold those all to myself. Hoarding is never a good thing. Some people are spiritual hoarders. We are given these gifts not just for ourselves. I mean, they are for us, but ultimately they're for everybody. They're for the common good. They're for all people. So when you are seeking these gifts, that's why we always take other people's interests to heart. What What is needed in the church today? What does my church need? What can I do? It's for the common good. What is my gift for them, for me and for them? It's really hard. There's always an imbalance in church. As you get if – you, if you imagine church as a wheel and as you get closer to uh, leadership, as you get closer to the day-to-day operations and, and, and people and who they are, you start to see things that you wish weren't there. You'd say people shouldn't do that in church, and I would agree. People say things and make accusations and, 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 and go off and just – it's just stuff that should not happen. But this is what happens when God uses imperfect people. It doesn't justify it. It's just the reality of what it is. And one of those hard realities to endure is that in nearly every church, there's always a group of people who are overcompensating for so many who haven't stepped up to do their part. So imagine, if you will, a one-legged person who actually has two legs, but they're trying to drag the other leg. They walk with a limp. They don't go as fast as they should. Sometimes churches don't grow not because they aren't preaching the gospel it's not because they're not uh right with the lord it's because there are people who have not stepped up into that place where they should be they have not even they have not even taken that first step they've been either either foolish i tend to believe they're just petrified to do anything or to do the wrong thing or or to look foolish and so what happens is those who step up have to compensate for those who have not that makes it very difficult in church sometimes. And that's not fun. And you can't preach on that, but it's the reality of what it is. So we've been equipped. I, I, all this morning as Pastor Ben was leading worship, I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to preach? What am I going to say? What am I going to do? Oh my gosh, it's almost time. He's, he's on the last song. And I, I just constantly am being reminded that God has equipped me to do this part right here. It has very little to do with my expertise because I have very little. It has very little to do with my uh, good talking because I just don't have good talking. Um, it has very little to do with my education. has very little to do with my reputation. has everything to do with Jesus and what he wants to do because I have been equipped and you have been equipped. But what is the job of all jobs? What is the calling of all callings? What is the one thing that if you're going to do it, you do it well, you do it as much as you can, you do it as loud as you can, you do it as constantly as you can. What is the job of jobs, church? To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. To share the good news that though we were sinners, when we were sinners, Jesus died for us. That God loved us so much that he didn't allow us to, sit, to stay in our sin destined for hell. That he has done all things so that we might be saved. This is the greatest job that we could ever endeavor to do. This is the one thing, if we're going to do nothing else, let us do this. It's a very popular saying, and it just irks it irks me right to the core Uh, preach the gospel use words if necessary that's like saying feed the homeless use food if necessary you know preach to prisoners go to jail if you know go to the prison if necessary it doesn't make any sense it's not that you shouldn't live a life that glorifies jesus but it should be both You should be glorifying Jesus by your actions, but also by your words. Do you know that Jesus was not crucified because he healed people from being sick? Jesus was not crucified because he cast out demons. Jesus was not crucified because he fed thousands of people from two fish and loaves. Jesus was crucified for the words that he spoke. Because he made himself, or he proclaimed to be equal with God the Father. And so sometimes doing things is a cop-out from saying things. And you can't forsake one for the other, but, but if you're going to do them, do both. Do and say. And if you've only got to choose one, go with words. I get the example from Jesus. It's the words that are more important. And they can be backed up with actions, but the words are what's going to cut to people's hearts. When Peter got up and preached in Acts chapter 2, it says they were cut to the heart. They weren't cut to the heart because they were given to the food bank. They weren't cut to the heart because they were so uh, loving and kind. They were cut to the heart because Peter proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. This is the job of jobs. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, it says, And he said to them, this is Jesus, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. And most people read verses 17 and 18 and say, "Oh my gosh, snakes and poison and healing and demons!" And, ah. You don't have you don't have 17 and 18 without 15 and 16. If we don't proclaim the gospel, if we don't preach to the world, if people do not believe, the the other part doesn't matter. If people are healed of the sick and uh, healed of being sick and they don't believe in Jesus, they'll go to hell a very healthy person. And that does nobody any good. Jesus can and does heal, and he will heal people who do not believe. I've seen it happen. But that's not the end of all things. The end of all things is to be healed of our problem with sin. And the good news is that we're all on a level playing field there. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3 says. We all need the gift of salvation. We all need to be saved. So here's your challenge today. You know, it's going to snow this afternoon. It's supposed to snow all day tomorrow. You're not going anywhere except for work. You're going to have a lot of time to spend at home. Instead of finding busy work, instead of finding things to occupy your time, why don't you spend a good chunk of time over the next couple of days asking yourself some really hard questions, asking God some really hard questions. Start by praying. Seek God. Ask that he would identify your gifts. Ask that he would purify you so that you're asking for things not out of pride or not because something's flashy, but you're you're endeavoring to do something because he's called you to do it. Make a decision or a choice. You know What you're going to do, either I'm going to try something or I feel like God has led me to something. Read your Bible. I'm as guilty as anybody. There are days where, God, I didn't read the Bible today. It makes me a hypocrite, but it doesn't make the, the, the practice any less worthy. So go home. If you haven't read your Bible, if there's an inch of dust on your Bible at home, or it only comes to church with you, or it only sits in your car, take it and open it. Do yourself a favor, read a paper Bible. Not on your phone, not on your iPads, not on the computer, because, because I find that my text messages still don't go to my Bible, to my paper Bible. You know, the games and the notifications don't come through that. And if I'm seeking just a little bit of solitude, having my phone present is going to obliterate that. So get yourself an actual paper Bible. Husbands, make time for your wives to go read the Bible. Wives, make time for your husbands to go read their Bible. Wait till the kids go to bed, read it together. Wake up a little early, read it together. Read it individually. Just read it. Don't don't look for the perfect plan. Don't look for the perfect verse. Just read your Bible. Number three is fast. We've been talking about fasting on Wednesday nights. We have the audio uploaded to our our website where you can listen to those lessons about fasting. The Christians in Acts chapter 13, they fasted when they heard the voice of the Holy Spirit tell them to set apart Saul and Barnabas for a missionary trip. And they fasted before and they fasted after. And they prayed before and they prayed after. And they sought the Lord before and they sought the Lord after. And if you've you've come to this conclusion, this is what I'm going to do, it is worth taking a day or a time to fast and to pray with us or, or just individually. Just take some time to make sure that what you're endeavoring to do is what God has called you to do. Number four is fail. I went through a very long period where I, I didn't do things because I was afraid to fail. And what I learned is that the more that I failed, the faster I found the things I was supposed to do. If I'd be willing to be vulnerable and just fail at something, I could s- cross that off the list and move on to something else. You know, I'm not called to be this. Cross that off. Let's try this one. You know, I'm not called to be this. Let's try that one. Failure can be devastating, but it's more devastating when nothing comes of it. When you can learn from that failure, you can, you can go and, and be led towards what you're actually called to do. Number five is be in community. What does that mean? That's like the, one of the latest Christian buzzwords. It's actually on its tail end, probably, probably losing its steam, but, but what it means is going to church. What it means is is going to Bible study. what it means is is having friendships outside the walls of these churches uh, of this church or any church to go have coffee with folks, ladies going and getting uh manicures and pedicures together you know- you know some of you might be saying right away like i don't i financially I can't do that. I know those things are expensive. talking of gifts and callings, there are some people who are who have been gifted financially. And for you, it's your job to take people like that. Say, hey, I love you. Can I take you to go get a pedicure? Now, most moms will say, oh, no, can't, blah, blah, blah. You're going to have to fight them for it a little bit. Maybe not all moms, but some moms. But I guarantee you there's some moms out there who need that. Be willing to do that if you're in that position or place. But be in community. Be connected to other people. I guarantee you, if you become isolated, Satan's going to attack you. Like the, like the little runt of the litter in a big safari where the lioness is going after a wildebeest. She goes after the one that's isolated and by itself. Because she doesn't want to get attacked by a bunch of different wildebeests. She'll attack the one that went off by itself. She'll attack the one that's isolated. Satan will attack the one that's isolated. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. And sometimes the gates of hell prevail in the life of an isolated individual. Be in community. Be connected. Strike up friendships. Well, nobody wants to be a friend for me. Well, then be a friend to them. Be vulnerable. Put yourself out there. Be nice and kind. It's what you're called to be anyways. Lastly, seek Jesus. Here's what I've always found. If you look for the gift, it's like a mad scramble. But if you look for Jesus, you'll find the gift. If you will seek Jesus, the giver of gifts, the gifts will be a byproduct of that relationship. It's much quicker, not discounting the will of the Lord and what he might be doing in your life. But I find that it's easier to seek the giver than it is to seek the gift. And then use that gift to worship Jesus. That is the highest and best use of any gift you might be given. And that includes the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus said is the greatest gift. That the Father gives good gifts, and he gives us the Holy Spirit. So I want to pray with you. For some of you, this is a really hard message because you've been seeking gifts. For some of you, it's hard because, well, you're filled with false pride, and you're not worthy to have a gift. Well, that's we got to get rid of that. Some of you uh, really want the, the high-profile gifts, but don't necessarily want the one you're probably called to, which is less high-profile. Some of you uh, may, might be stuck in a place where you shouldn't be, but now you don't know what to do. And some of you don't even know where to begin. And we want to help all of you. Jesus, all of these things I've said today is for all of us. If you are a believer in Jesus today, then this is for you. If you are not a believer in Jesus today, well, this is your day to believe in Jesus. So let's stand. Where's Ben? Ben? Oh, you have a baby. Well, bring her up. I'll hold her. You play guitar and I'll, and I'll hold her. Let's pray together. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that you would find the gifts that Jesus has called you to do. The things that he's called you to do. That you'd be able to identify what those are. Let's pray together. Jesus, what a glorious thing that you have not only that you've not only saved us that through faith in you and your cross that we have been forgiven but Lord that you give to us Lord in all of this I have read nothing or proclaimed nothing that we must do before you give us gifts for many of us Lord those gifts lay dormant they, they just they are things that we have and we don't even know they're there Jesus I'm praying today would be the beginning of this path of of finding what these gifts are that we would begin not only to experience them for ourselves but use them for others to serve others and ultimately proclaim the name of Jesus and Lord we all fail at that there are times where we should speak and we are silent there are times where we are silent and we should speak There are times where we should go and we stay and vice versa. So, Father, I'm asking not only for forgiveness, but that you would lead us as we confess our sins to you, as we repent of our sins, that, Jesus, you would have mercy on us, that you would even have the mercy to allow us to fail at doing the things that maybe we want to do but aren't called to do. And, Jesus, may we be people who even if we stood before you and said we failed at everything may it be failure in trying to serve and love and be kind may it not be failure of getting up may not be failure of of trying new things but but i would rather lord fail at trying to serve somebody than never do anything at all so father i pray for your people i pray for every person here today that you would begin to highlight and identify those gifts that they have that you're ready to begin unfolding for them and for this church. Let me give you the praise today, Jesus. There are people who have never given their life to you. If this is a day where this is this is the day, this is the time where you have penetrated their heart and it's time to forsake their old life and give and, and take up the new life you have for them, Jesus. May may you do that today. Father, if we're people who are just, we're backslidden, we're, we've walked away, we've forsaken you. But Lord, we know today's the day we come back. I pray today would be that day. That we'd find your open arms. That we'd find your loving embrace. And give our lives to you. Jesus, we love you. In you we find our only hope.